Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This episode of Garden DC, we're joined by Marie Mims Butler, a longtime garden friend of mine and a wonderful garden communicator and recent retiree. Welcome, Marie. Hi, Kathy. Good to talk to you today. I'm so glad to finally have you on the podcast because you are one of my favorite storytellers. Did you know that? (laughs) And you know some people who can tell stories, I know. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Marie is a raconteur of the old school style, right? That that will allow me to use my accent, won't it? <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So Marie is uh, talking to us right now from her home in Virginia Beach, Virginia. How is the weather there today? The edge of Zeta has been blowing through this afternoon. Mm-hmm. A little bit of rain and mostly hail of acorns at my house. Tomorrow's going to be a slippery day outside harvesting acorns. <laughs> Yeah, same here. I think fall uh, has abruptly arrived. (laughs) We had a nice warm spell before that. So have you already put away all your annuals and tropicals? I only took about three plants up to the guest room for this season. I tend to forget them up there. So I realized that house plants are work and I better choose the ones that are the most forgiving. So I did put some begonias in the guest room, and I have a mini chefflera in a large jardinier. It was a four-inch plant when my son was in college, and he's 41 now. So I'm especially proud of that little chef. So it comes inside and stays cooler in some indirect light and thrives in spite of my neglect. Oh, cool. Well, it's nice to know. Uh, House plants are, you know, on the upswing, and we'll probably devote a few episodes just to house plants. Uh, I know a lot of, I guess I'll consider them dirt in the nails outdoor gardeners who have zero indoor plants except for those that they winter (laughs) over inside. That's me. Mm-hmm. That's me. <laughs> yeah, it's funny the division. And then there's the houseplant people that their only outdoor plants are when they take their houseplants out for summer vacation on their deck <laughs> or patio. I certainly, mine can't wait to get out. Mm-hmm. They'd much rather experience Mother Nature than Miss Marie. <laughs> That's so true. So um, our topic today is gardening for or with wildlife. But I wanted you to tell our listeners about the wild wildlife uh, that you've experienced. And then we'll talk more about what we might see in a Mm -hmm. typical mid-Atlantic garden. Um, So let's dial all the way back to Marie's youth and how you got started (laughs) gardening. Oh, I guess I've always loved pretty flowers. My mother was a farmer's daughter. And we always had some flowers and uh, maybe some tomato plants. My grandmother on my dad's side loved her house plants. And whenever we would visit, she would give us a guided tour of her African violets and the crown of thorns with gumdrops stuck on it. Now, how's that for behavioral enrichment for grandchildren? (laughs) 
<laughs> so can, you were able to eat those gumdrops or were they there if, for protection? If you were very careful, you could eat the gumdrops. <laughs> I always thought that was kind of a grandchild trap that she'd set for us. Mm. But plants like Joseph's coat and what she called chicken gizzard. And chicken gizzards made it back as a house plant and as an annual. It's the lovely dark red puckered leaf, more formally known as irisene. So when I went off to college, like many, I wound up in absolutely the wrong major and stumbled into an individualized study program for life sciences. And by the time I got to zoology, I went back to my advisor going, I'm not cutting on anything else. I have no future in medicine. And he sighed and said, well, you may as well try plants. Why don't you take a botany course and maybe horticulture? And by the way, Dr. Larson is looking for someone to work in the floriculture greenhouses. Are you interested? And I said, I don't know what floriculture is, but okay. And I wound up working in one of the strongest floriculture departments in the country for two and a half years. So I have a background in landscape design and in floriculture, horticultural research. And it all wound up tied up together with four different universities and many different programs in my degree from NC State. As a senior, I got a call from the school next door to NC State, desperate for a substitute teacher in their vocational horticulture program. It was the Governor Moorhead School for the Blind. I saw two classes on a Friday and I was a full-time teacher of the blind on Monday. That was the total of my training. Luckily, the teacher before me had wonderful lesson plans, but we had a greenhouse. We walked the grounds and did plant ID. My students will never forget the abelia shrub because as I told them to be careful, reaching out to touch it, they, they described that as brailing the plant. I said, before you braille the plant, listen, because there are bees in the abelia and Miss Mims got stung right on cue. So I know one plant my students will never forget <laughs> is the abelia. But I taught at Governor Moorhead and for another semester, wound up getting married and I married the Navy and I saw the world. So from Virginia Beach landscape design to, we lived in California about a year and a half. I was cultivating little children then. We moved to Japan, which became for, for wound up being four years. And what do you do in horticulture in Japan? I bought one bonsai tree and probably killed it. When I was living in the land of, of little people, I did not need anything else high maintenance. I had three kids, five and, five and under. So that left Ikebana. So I studied Japanese flower arrangement. And when you learn to think of it as sculpture with plants and flowers, it's, it makes more sense. I still love a big old blousy Victorian bouquet, but I love the clean lines and the aesthetics of Ikebana. Um, we moved from Japan to Singapore for four years, so I worked for the State Department and back to the United States. I discovered the Master Gardener program they were having lots of fun. I may have had a degree, but they were having more fun with it. So I'm a Chesapeake 
Master Gardener Emeritus, 29 years now, <laughs> um, part of the Master Gardener program. Well, we had four private school tuitions going out of the house at once, and I decided I needed to work. And a friend from the Organic Gardening Club handed me a job description she'd picked up at the Botanic Garden the day before. It was for the zoo. And she said, Marie, you've done it all. Well, I had. But the city of Norfolk thought you could do everything involved in gardening and be 18 with two years experience. Um, I was a little over 18 with a lot more experience, but I think it was my broken fingernails that I had tried to clean up for the interview that landed me the job. I had to convince people that you don't have hands that look like mine if you don't garden hands-on. And I wound up working in zoo horticulture for almost 20 years. So I was a gardener for about four and a half and then pushed my way kind of into the design aspect. So I did both design and gardening for the rest of the 20 years. It was wonderful. I was the tiger's personal gardener <laughs> for four years. Mm. Yeah. And where does a 350-pound cat sit? Yeah. Anywhere she wants to and preferably on something that you've just planted. So it was a, an amazing time. There's so much to consider. I figured with animals, you just shovel poop and you feed them. And the animal services side that decides we plant things, water them, feed them, walk away. So it took a lot of education back and forth to create a public garden and safe animal habitats as well. So I, I like to tell people, you know, I'm Zoo-ish. I still visit lots of zoos. But since I retired, I am learning that it's my money and my muscle in my garden. And the cat does not respond to a telephone call, a radio call. No assistance in the garden like I used to get. So it's very different having retired. <laughs> Hmm. And that was the Norfolk Zoo, correct? Well, it's the Virginia Zoo Virginia in Zoo. Norfolk. In Norfolk. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. Yeah, I think colloquially we all call it the Norfolk Absolutely. Zoo. And I will never think uh, or look at an irisene plant again after the chicken <laughs> gizzards <laughs> description. I always thought it was just this beautiful pink fuchsia color. Now I'm like, oh. <laughs> it looks like chicken guts, yes. Yes. So, so you have uh, yeah, brought up a great point, which is that a lot of people, when they visit the zoo, we walk around with plant blindness. We just look at the animals, but the horticulture at many zoos is exemplary on the level of many public gardens, uh, because there are, of course, display gardens, and then they are trying to recreate maybe not exact habitats, but what looks like habitats. So can you talk about some of those um, pairings of animals and maybe some plants that might be native to the Mid-Atlantic that might not have been native to their um, home uh, habitats? Certainly, certainly. We realized when people come into the zoo that plants were not the first thing on people's minds, but they were the first things they would see. You know, from the front entrance, you know, up to the ticket booth, we've got to grab people, let them know they're welcome, they're at an exciting place, come on in. So we had a 
the real mission to greet and dazzle before people have even come inside the gates. And at the Virginia Zoo, our exhibits were arranged by continent. So, for instance, in the Asian exhibit, we were supposed to recreate tropical Indonesia, Bali to be specific, in December when they gave us the go-ahead to plant. So I used things like large single camellias and they'd be evergreen. They'd give us bloom in some of the winter and into the spring. And if you squinch up your eyes just right, you might pretend they're hibiscus. And then things like the large leaf magnolia acuminata, very exotic looking, but it's a native tree with leaves that are about two feet long. Um, we used a lot of crepe myrtles, which Norfolk has a lot of crepe myrtles, but that gives us a continuity of color from June pretty much through August. And many of our guests were from more northern climates than ours and were totally wowed by crepe myrtles. We could have paid off the zoo horticulture budget every year selling crepe myrtles to Yankees, but they don't live very much further north, so that would not have been fair. Um, ornamental grasses, and so much depends on the animal itself. We had to look up the, uh, study the animal, their behaviors. If they climb trees, what can we put in their exhibit that they can climb on, not destroy, and not escape the exhibit by climbing the tree? Um, we wound up with some very old field-grown um, crepe myrtles in one of the um, sun bear exhibit, in a bear exhibit. They love to climb, but we had to be sure they couldn't get out but they also like to sharpen their claws. So we wound up with some dead trunks in their own purpose for them to climb. And then we protected the trunks of the live trees with hot wire that looked like vine. It wasn't a terrible shock. It was just a reminder not to climb or sharpen claws on those trees. They had other places to go. Um, some of the animals that lived on turf in the African exhibit we had gelata baboons, and I saw an Animal Planet show on the baboons, and it looked like all they did all day was pull up at the grass, eat it, and jump on each other. Well, that turned out to be kind of true. We were told by the mayor when to open the exhibit, and with Prime H, you need several months for the exhibit to root in and establish before they go in. We had one week. And as soon as the baboons were released into the yard, they pulled up the sod, they threw it in their moat, they pulled up the ornamental grasses, and just sat there laughing at us, watching a horticultural staff fry. <laughs> so, and we put repellent on some of the plants, and they ate repellent like Hershey's syrup. So it took us weeks to get the turf established in an exhibit where the animals were going to keep pulling it up. But they did us a favor because they ate bamboo shoots. As the background of bamboo would crawl through the chain link fence, they'd snap the new shoots off and eat them. 
course, they didn't realize if they'd allowed it to grow, it would have covered the hot wire and they could have climbed out. So they played a part in keeping themselves in that exhibit, too. Hmm, there's a lesson in there somewhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I was going to say those baboons remind me of, of some young boys that I know. Oh, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I was tearing up did. the turf. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, and we then our, we said we had new um, curators come in that were bird nerds. And we didn't have a lot of birds at the zoo, but we added birds. And they're a completely different kind of animal when it comes to what do they need to perch on? How do you keep them again in the exhibit? What is toxic to them that might fall in their exhibits? Or what can they tolerate that might not be able to go into a mammal exhibit? Because birds can eat things that mammals can't. Um, every animal, every exhibit was different. And also by the personality of the animal. I mentioned the tigers. I had been in the tiger exhibit. They were in a double lock, lockdown. And we had radio protocols. You know, they were truly locked in. They'd love to hit the exit doors to scare us, but they were really locked in when I gardened. I planted some ornamental grasses in their yard. Came out, radioed the keeper that I was clear so she could release the tigers. Well, Miss Shaka Khan comes out. She sees me at the viewing window. The animal's always went to any disruption in their exhibit first. She went over to the grass I planted. She looks at me. She grabbed a mouthful, shook it, looked at me, turned around, sat on the grass, and looked at me, stood up, peed on it, (laughs) looked at me, turned around and flipped her tail at me and walked away. Hmm. Now, how many ways can you be told off by a cat? Yeah. Yeah. I think she was saying, I'm going to mark it with my scent and not human scent. That's it, Marie. You think you got away with something? Uh-uh. You know, kiss this. Yeah. So just, yeah. They were just 350 pounds of cat attitude. The next pair we had would have ripped your throat out given any opportunity. They were terrifying animals. So it was a different, the same type of tiger with completely different personalities. Um, We never treated them like pets, really not any of the animals were treated like pets, except perhaps the ones that went out for school show and tell. They had to be handled and tamed and learn certain behaviors. But no, people who thought we went in with large carnivores were nuts. We (laughs) did not do that. I was going to ask if there are any plants that you put in um, that you were surprised that they ate or had a uh, uh, taste for that you thought for sure this is rep- either repellent oh. or poisonous, that nothing's going to eat this plant. Well, I remember when the giraffes were held in their building during a quarantine period, they were new. They wouldn't touch fresh cut branches of magnolia. Whenever we trimmed shrubbery that was non-toxic, we would offer it to the herbivores. And they loved crepe myrtle. They loved fatinia. Um, Wouldn't touch magnolia. So we figured we have some very old trees on the ground. The park was over 100 years old. Um, 
the magnolias near and in their exhibit were safe. Wrong. Within less than a week, the magnolias were pruned as far as a giraffe neck could reach. They ate it. The, not exactly an African-looking tree. That's another one you had to kind of pretend might have been a baobab. But nope. They ate everything they could reach, and therefore any barricades, any tree protection had to be far enough away from the tree that the angle of the giraffe neck couldn't reach it. So <laughs> it got to be complicated at times to find out what they could reach from the edges and what they would chew on or not chew on. I'm trying to think who are things that got trampled. Our elephants could be a little fussy at times, but one time they got really miffed with each other and I had a radio call and it was like, Marie, bring bring Fatinia now. And man, with the elephant keepers, you jumped when they yelled. They never yelled at me before. So I managed to cut some branches, run to the elephant house, and they were trying to break up an argument between the elephants and a keeper. And they offered them the Fatinia. They had turned down French bread, which was a favorite snack. But they adored red tip. And they had eaten any that had been offered and a little bit that had been in reach of their exhibit. So we knew that was a good one to bribe with them. Um, we just knew not to ever be surprised. Now, we would never plant anything that we knew was toxic near them. A place near us had a no-feeding sign near their sheep, but someone thought it'd be just nice, so they turned and picked a branch of some of the shrubbery and held it out to the sheep, and they poisoned them. It also behooved us to have anything that might disagree with the animals planted well away from animal exhibits because of guests who didn't respect the no feeding signs. Hmm. And what about, um, I'm going to call them guest animals. So <laughs> I've seen this particularly at the National Zoo um, where it's a pen of, say, flamingo or something else. And then there's um, the local birds also uh, partake of, of what's offered there. So did you have oh. raccoons and oh, other yeah. guests that, that would come in to the animal enclosures? I had a raccoon that used to share one of my tool rooms, and it managed to chew into, I think it was a three-gallon jug of fish emulsion, yeah, foul-smelling fish emulsion, mm-hmm. and it ate organic rose fertilizer that was high in alfalfa. And I was sure the paw prints around my tool room got bigger every night because of what that raccoon was getting into. And we had some hefty ones. We didn't want them at the zoo because they could track in rabies, for one thing. Um, So we would try to trap them if we could. Um, We had fly-in birds on our duck pond. We were also on a river. So sometimes migratory birds would come in. They were kind of welcome. They would be different because we did have some swans and a few birds that were our own. But some interesting birds would fly in. The ones we wished would keep going, of course, were the Canada geese. And it seemed to me they just couldn't potty train their young'uns out there on the grass. They had to potty train them on our paved fountain plaza. I mean, just come on. 
<laughs> geese are just poop machines anyway but yep we chased them we had fireworks that we could pop at them I had a boss who would run and chase them and they'd fly off for a while they knew I would walk fast and wave my pocketbook at them that did not scare them very much but the Canada geese got to be a real nuisance um they're just such a mess and they would try to nest inside some of the animal exhibits um pretty smart because they might get away with building a nest before we could spot it in the middle of the rhino exhibit you know, behind a tree barrier maybe the one in front of the, in the ticket booth front entrance bed that one we noticed right away um we had mice that played occasionally in one of our exhibit buildings but we also had constrictors that liked mice so sometimes I think a balance might have been struck in that building. <laughs> um, the birds, we asked that people not bring dogs to the zoo except for true service dogs. And we didn't even want dogs near the perimeter of the zoo. And sometimes the neighborhood strays could be kind of an issue, but they would just tend to scatter if we wanted to, to shoo them away. Um, at one point, the feral cats on grounds were trapped neutered, given their shots, their ears were notched so we could recognize them from a distance. And they truly helped keep down the rodents in our feed barns, but we realized they could also be pests um, and harm the native birds. So we did try to reduce and have our ferals adopted um, rather than let them run the grounds. But for working cats, they were very effective keeping down the, var the varmints. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine there was a lot of spilled um, animal feed, and that would obviously oh, no. attract vermin to it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the raccoons would come at night. Um, some of the animals, of course, were fed several times a day or fed at night. And, they're not, and raccoons tend to be nocturnal. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, looking to see what they could find. Creatures that could get into trash cans. Oh, our custodian was half scared to death one morning when he took the lid off a trash can to change the bag and a raccoon popped out. He got in the flaps. He couldn't get back out because of the flaps. So the custodial staff from then on would poke the can with the broom handle before <laughs> changing the bag. And before we used the flapped lids, um, we had honeybees on ground. We had beehives. And turns out the bees were going to the trash cans and collecting soda pop as sugar. And the honey turned out to be soda pop flavored. So we started closing off the trash cans and the bees had to stick to, to flowers and there were plenty of blooms for them. So at least we gave up our soda pop flavored honey. Yeah, we didn't mean for that to happen. That sounds delicious though. <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. So um, transitioning from the zoo wildlife and gardening with and for them mm -hmm. to your own home garden and home garden experiences, mm -hmm. uh, I imagine you also have raccoons and possums come into your own home garden. What other creatures mm -hmm. do you have visiting your garden? Well, I used to have an Asian pear tree in my front yard. I don't, I have a lot of native trees in my yard. So sunlight it's pretty precious. And the pears were ripening. And I went out one morning. It was early to get the newspaper. And the squirrel was in the top of that pear tree. 
the possum in the middle and the raccoon was working the ground and they stripped that pear tree in one night. I decided that for all the Asian pears that I ate anyway, I could buy two a year and not quite feed them so well in my front yard. So the tree came out. Um, I have seen, I'd put up bird suet and the whole cake would disappear at night. I'm pretty sure that was possum that was doing that. Mm, same same here same here Mm -hmm. (laughs) until i started using the um cakes that are impregnated with uh red hot pepper that i would just get the entire suet cake and the cage itself would be gone (laughs) and and up a tree or somewhere else i tried the hot pepper bird seed suet i even had a hosta called guacamole i finally decided i had Hispanic varmints out there that were going for the hot spicy food and the guacamole. So, you know, it was time for me to change the plant names at least. I had invited them in to eat, you know, with serving such delightful treats as, you know, spicy sunflower seeds and, you know, guacamole to cool them down afterwards. Um, I had, I probably was here at the house about 25 years before I ever saw any vole damage. And I was standing beside some aspidistra that began to quiver. And then a stem would flop over. And then there'd be a quiver and another stem would fall. And I thought I heard chewing. And finally, I realized, I just hollered, do you want some salad dressing with that? They were voles (laughs) attacking it. They'd gotten some of my other hostas. And a few weeks into the battle... I noticed spots in the morning in my garden that looked like a dog had been digging out there and no dogs run loose in the neighborhood. Finally, I decided there must be another fox in the neighborhood besides me um, because the fox was taking care of those voles. And between the fox and the black snake, I didn't have a vole problem after that. I better knock on wood. I hope I don't have them again. Mm Yeah, I know you're a cat person like me, mm-hmm. so I thought you were going to say that your kitties took care of your vole problem, but that's great to hear about a visiting fox. Even when they played outside, mine were worthless. They'd sit on the deck rail and point, Mama, the muskrat is in the black yard. Aren't you going to do something about him? And sure enough, there's a muskrat that lives in the lake, well, several, in the lake behind the house. And the cats just reported on it. They weren't about to chase anything as big as that muskrat. Um, he would come out of the garden and break my tomato vines and then drag them down to his hole in the lake bank. Not just steal tomatoes, like bunny nibbles and squirrel bites. The muskrat stole branches of tomato. I didn't know what a muskrat was. I thought he was just some kind of cute little otter creature in the lake. And my neighbor across the way and I were chatting one day because he fenced his garden and told me about muskrats. So I haven't seen any muskrat damage for a while, but I know they're still in the lake. I have- Do the muskrats, sorry, sorry to interrupt Marie, but do the muskrats go after anything else besides the tomato plants? I think they broke for Scythia, but my mama used to use those for switches when we were naughty. So I thought maybe the baby muskrats were being naughty. Um, (laughs) Gonna get switched. In my garden, that's all I saw that they went for. I think there's some, there have been nutria 
which are really huge. They look like guinea pigs. They also escaped the fur trade and made their way this far north. They do a lot of damage to the lake banks and to dams. It just so happens our land is so flat, they haven't really damaged our, the flow of water in and out of our lake. Um, Nutria can chew on larger plants. I have not seen their damage at all. Um, we have large, we have predators. There's an osprey that lives on or around the lake. So I see it fishing almost daily and several flavors of hawks come through. So I saw six little rabbits in the springtime and I haven't seen any rabbits in the last month. Um, Hmm. I wish you developed a taste for squirrels. I still yes. have lots of squirrels. <laughs> yeah, that's why in my uh, garden mammals talk, I always refer to uh, rabbits as nature's popcorn because <laughs> <laughs> everybody likes to eat bunnies. Um, and if you're lucky, you will have a hawk come through and, and do the uh, dirty work for you and remove them. But yeah, I've seen them go after squirrels, but not as much as they will rabbits no but the squirrels are tricky there was a close call for a squirrel in a tree near my deck the other morning and um I, he was just lucky that the hawk didn't grab him scared him yeah, about scared him to death but i have plenty of squirrels i bought some of the squirrel proof feeders that have a sensitive perch on them and if something heavier than the birds to which you set that perch hits that, the whole chute closes and it throws, and the squirrel falls off and doesn't get any sunflower seed. Well, they don't remember that or the next generations don't know. So I found it worth the entertainment value of squirrels trying to get into that feeder. Um, I think they finally kind of caught that if they launch at it and shake it, they can knock a few seeds out of it before the chute closes. But as long as it's really making them work for it, yeah, you know, I don't mind it. I don't hmm. feed them on purpose, mm -hmm. but there's plenty out there for them to eat. This is going to be a bumper crop of acorns this year. I'm sure tomorrow our yards are just covered in brown marbles. Mm -hmm. um, they've got plenty of, of things out there to eat without going for my bird seed or the tomatoes in the garden. Mm -hmm. They picked tomatoes from containers in my front yard and brought them to the deck so they would have a view while they ate them. Just... <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the complaint of a lot of home gardeners is that squirrels like to come and pick the green tomatoes or when they're just getting a little red blush to them. They were picking green persimmons off my Asian persimmon tree and I thought they deserved that. But apparently they don't pucker up from mm. eating an unripe persimmon like I would have hoped. Yeah, they they definitely don't have as sensitive taste buds as humans, or they just ignore it. Oh, yeah. I think sometimes it's just the cussed factor. <laughs> and, the, yeah, the stubbornness um, and being able to have that. So do you have uh, figs or other fruit trees? I do have a couple of figs kind of planted more where I want them than nature does. And I tried to come to an agreement with the birds and the other varmints. I put up my arm and I gestured at about six feet high. I said, from here up, it's yours. From here down, it's mine. 
and they violated that agreement. So I get a couple of figs. My fig tree's in way too much shade. It's really more for sculptural value than fruiting value. Um, but I do get a few. I haven't had any blueberries, blackberries, or grapes in years. Um, I'm trying to think of who else is out there. that They leave the herbs alone. Mm -hmm. The bunnies ate, I used um, bush beans for filler in the garden the early, early summer, and they ate them all. So they didn't have a chance to come up in the least. Um, yeah, they like to eat the the bean plants themselves down yep. to the nub. Like you you won't even see the the beans themselves, but they just love the tender plants. And I was going to ask, with your zoo horticultural experience, um, have that has that taught you any lessons for what to plant or what not to plant, or maybe the way you plant um, um, in areas in your home garden? I think so. As you know, one of my lead talks is. I have elephants in my garden, so what's your problem? There were a lot of things that carried across into my own yard. I was already very nature-friendly slash organic, but I swore the zoo motto was, if it doesn't move, mulch it. If it moves slowly, mulch it anyway. You know, we used a lot of mulch in the beds at the zoo, trying to keep down weeds and avoid herbicide use. So I'm very good at mulching and planting close together. I mix edibles and ornamentals. We did that a lot to surprise our public. You know, if you can catch somebody's eye when they realize that beautiful plant that looks like Christmas tree light bulbs is actually pepper, a pepper plant next to a coleus um, or Swiss chard next to that, then elephant ears. So fun combinations that make vegetables more attractive in my mind and spread it out so the creatures don't have one location only to dine in. Um, sometimes a sense of just trying to distract the animals um, by having a couple places where I feed the birds. I didn't catch them pecking at some of the fruits in the garden. Um, there's an awful lot to choose from in my neighborhood because it's a wooded neighborhood too. Yeah. And I would say that's the, the principle of a trap crop Yes, um, to have something really good and yummy, you know, over on the right and distract you from that really valuable plant that you love on the left. That's what I laughingly call lawn in my backyard. I'm of the school. If it's green and I can mow it, it's turf. Um, plenty of clover and diversity out there. So, Normally, that's where the rabbits were, but they still found their way kind of into some of the gardens. I also know to try to pick plants that will fill their space to the right proportion over time. In a park that was over 100 years old, there were certainly things that had overgrown their boundaries. And as we selected plants, I try, as I selected them, I tried to keep in mind, what will this plant be doing in 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Is it going to be a problem and then leave a big hole if they have to take it out? So I'm much more aware of gardening across time at home. And I buy large, slightly larger plants now because I want to see them do something in my lifetime. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not going to just take a cutting and, and wait another 40 years for it to grow. Um, so choosing the right size plant 
at adulthood for the right spot. I like to mix it up so the habitat out there is diverse. I don't do much cutting back in autumn. And if anybody dared ask me why my back border is so messy, I've learned to put my nose in the air, look down it at them, and declare that is winter interest and wildlife habitat with great point you ignorant individual yeah more than implied Mm -hmm. Um, because it's true you know ornamental grasses left off over the winter yeah moving the breezes and rustle full of sound and they're probably full of insect eggs and dormant insects i don't cut them back until they're pushing new growth in spring um we don't get much of a snow load here so it doesn't make a flattened mess if something's really awful looking, I'll trim it up. It is Southeast Virginia. We don't like big messes. Um, but I have a good 10-foot buffer on my lake bank of wild plants and native plants. I leave edges for shelter for the pl- animals. Um, I've learned to hire out. I have some tree trimming to be done and a couple of shrubs that are too big. And I don't do chainsaws. So I have learned to, you know, when when necessary, you know, call in the pros. I use my autumn leaves for mulch. So I'm trying to look at this as leaf harvest and handle it very graciously rather than cursing the fact I'm out there daily trying to manage leaves, you know, into the proper places. Um, Product-wise, I have to... Um, always been conscientious of what I use at the zoo in some cases though we had not just be organic we had to be edible in what was used in the exhibits zebras are going to go out there and eat what you've just done so we had to keep sowing seed continuously to have any grass in the rhino and zebra yard so we would suspend it in alfalfa meal or in seaweed meal and as we Bermuda seed is very, very fine. You need to bulk it up to send it through the spreader. And that way it's actually beneficial if the animal ate some of the product. We weren't going in with, you know, pelletized synthetic fertilizer. Hmm. This was actually something that could be in their feed that was safe, but also very beneficial to the soil life and the plants. And that's a great point that um, even the plants, I imagine that you had to source in had to be organically grown at the greenhouses. So if you bought an ornamental grass, say that you were putting inside an exhibit, that if it wasn't treated by a, with a herbicide or a fungicide or something before it came to the zoo. There were times that we kept plants in holding areas and made sure we'd washed them thoroughly. Um, pellet, the timelease fertilizers weren't usually an issue because they were buried in the holes. Um, with them to some degree, but we would never want that in like a bird exhibit for birds to be in there pecking at either the little tiny thyme pills or the, you know, other pelletized fertilizers. Um, I like the notion that, that's more current now of rinsing a lot of the soils off the root balls and putting them in touch with what they're supposed to grow in right away. And that helps to remove a lot of chemicals too in those exhibits. Tropical plants were probably more likely to be treated, but we didn't have, I'm thinking of some of the exhibits and buildings look like great big terrarium. Um, 
not too many of those animals ate the plants. They might shred them, slither on them, you know, or weigh them down. But we certainly washed the tropicals thoroughly before we put them in an exhibit. And I can imagine many of them came in bulb form to you, like cannas or that sort of thing, or corms, mm -hmm. so that you weren't starting with a, a started plant that was uh, sprayed with an herbicide or something. We did annual plantings when I was at the zoo, so we would rotate and have some bulbs in the public spaces. In our case, cannas are perennial, so we would bring them in as one to three gallon plants and just be mindful and cut them back in fall, but they would come back reliably and sometimes too aggressively in some of our spaces. Um, not so many annuals, if we were done with it, lots of pansies and violas, which are very popular as treats for the herbivores. Um, amazingly, elephants loved rose branches. We had a formal rose garden and when we would do the hard pruning at the end of winter, the elephants loved those thorny branches. That's so weird. I thought that would <laughs> you know, hurt their snufflers to be you know, yeah. about that. Um, and I can never figure out also why deer, um, also, you know, obviously apples, roses, very close relatives, and, you know, the fruits of both very similar and the flowers very similar. But why a deer would eat the entire thorny stalk, and especially some of those that are really, you know, large thorns, and not care? No. And our barnyard, um, of course, goats would love the branches. The keepers didn't want us to give it to the sheep because they could get stuck in the sheep's coat <laughs> they, you know, if they were just messing with them. And the keepers didn't want to have to reach in and pull the branches out of the sheep's coats. Um, butterfly bush, Budlia was very popular when we would have any um, branches cut back for that. Um, and rose blossoms. Oh, we had a, a huge porcupine, a prehensile tail porcupine who loved rose petals. Before I started working at the zoo, there was a hippopotamus named Nyla. Nyla used to come to the wall and beg when she would see the head horticulturist come up with the bag in hand and she would get a mouthful of rose petals. I have the cutest picture of her with a great big a mouth and rose full of roses and then petals stuck on her chin. Um, <laughs> yeah, that does bring up the, the whole topic of edible flowers. And, and one of these days we'll have to do a whole separate podcast episode just on the edible flowers out there. Oh, absolutely. You know, for, for the creatures and for us. Mm -hmm. So many times they think things are edible that we prefer they didn't, but that's okay. Exactly. <laughs> Which brings us to, for our last few minutes together, um, the dirty four-letter word of gardeners everywhere, deer. <laughs> so any deer advice for our listeners? Boy, if I had the answer to that, I'd be rich, famous, six foot two, blonde and buxom. Uh, a hungry deer will eat anything. There are things they find less appetizing. I gather like rosemary, some of the plants with resins they don't like so much. Fencing, if at all possible, and I know that's not always possible. Um, 
the repellents. I know plant skid is one that we've been given. And oddly enough, I had to use or try some repellents at the zoo. I mentioned the baboons that ate, ate it like Hershey syrup. So clearly that was, a, that was a miss. Ropel does not work on baboons. It wasn't off-label use. You can't even put plants near the house on the guarantee that deer won't get to it. But I have heard that deer follow certain paths. And if there are yummy treats, things they want to eat along the pathways, they don't venture sideways. Mm-hmm. So some people who've had a deer path at the back of their property planted a few yummy things back there, and the deer kept going and didn't come into the backyard to eat the daylilies. In suburbia, you don't always have a clear-cut woodland path like that. Mm-hmm. So about the only thing I can think of are the repellents and fencing. And consider it maybe a pruning opportunity. Maybe the plant will come back thicker for the, for having been nibbled. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do hear that from some gardeners that the spring haircuts, like late spring haircuts that some of their perennials get, um, actually make the plants grow thicker and fuller and more blooms later on. And that would be kind of a substitution for the, what's called the Chelsea chop that you do mid-season um, to get your perennials to, to grow um, more sturdy and more flowers later on. So no. if you could only have little signs all around the garden that said, eat this, not this to the deer. I, I know it. I know it. And a, a dear friend of mine um, wound up with some holes in the deer fence and her probably two or three acre gorgeous woodland garden was eaten to the front porch. It was eaten and heartbreaking, heartbreaking for the years spent shaping plants and nurturing plants. But the best they can do is hope for a successful hunting season on the land around them. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, uh, I think a lot of gardeners are, who are now former gardeners is because of the heartbreak of deer of just having, you know, an entire garden mowed down in a season and then replanting it and mowed down again uh, by the, by them. And then they just give up, which is so sad to see. But I was going to, in our last few minutes, talk a little bit about a mutual friend of ours, Phil Normandy at Brookside Gardens. Yeah. And he has an, an incredible amount of deer pressure around him um, in that Brookside Gardens is wrapped around on almost all sides by Wheaton Regional Park. Um, and they, I've seen them do, um, they have deer fencing, of course, and they have like deer entrances that are like cattle rolls right. mm-hmm. um, to keep the deer from walking straight through the front door, basically. But every once in a while, you know, a fence is breached and deer get in and then they'll call up the volunteers and have everybody lined up in a row banging on pots and pans to flush the deer back into the park area. Um, has Phil given you any other um, tips or blow-by-blow stories? Actually, he's got a big challenge at his house. It's a wonderful neighborhood of little cottages. It started out as little cottages. You know, there's some bigger replacements in there now, but they're backyard to backyard to backyard. There are no alleyways. It, it's fence to fence to fence, but the deer come out of, is it Rock Creek Park? Mm-hmm. And he sent a picture of a daylily. He hadn't seen it bloom for four years. 
Uh, it, to me, that's very close living. Now, people have nice yards and they, and they have plants and buff, you know, there's some greenery a little bit between them, but these are small yards and those deer just boing, boing, boing over the fences like they're stepping over a curb. And what do you do with urban dwelling deer? The largest predator is the front hood of a car. Yeah, very true that the close-in suburbs and inside the Beltway, the deer basically are are coming along the stream park corridors mm -hmm. into urban backyards, and there's a tremendous amount of pressure um, on that population. And most of the deer um, culling is happening, of course, in the outer suburbs where it can happen. Um, but in this case, for your garden, then fencing at least eight foot high, perimeter spraying, and planting things that deer don't find as palatable are probably our best bets. That's what I've heard. Mm -hmm. Now, unfortunately, they've been spotted near the edge of my neighborhood because of habitat destruction, thanks to future development. But they have not come into my part of the neighborhood yet. I am praying they don't. Yeah, definitely knock on wood for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, in our last few minutes with you, uh, Marie, do you want to let the listeners know if they have a garden club or other group and want to have you come and speak to them, um, perhaps on your mm -hmm. zoo experiences, maybe talk about some of your other topics that you speak on and how people would contact you? Oh, thank you very much. Um, I do love to do in-person talks, and I do realize in these times I'm going to have to, to prepare some for Zoom, but I much more enjoy, of course getting to meet and greet and interact with audiences. I still speak on zoo horticulture and I include more than just the Virginia Zoo. I have a program coming up on, let's see, designing for the wildlife. And I do point out, I'm not talking about Animal House, but it's you know, how can you create an animal friendly garden that doesn't look messy, the same design principles can apply and you can have an attractive wildlife garden as well. I love the Victorian language of flowers, tussie-mussies, and how to send messages, not just through flowers, but maybe through a packet of seeds. Um, container gardening of all kinds, whether it's for wildlife, for food, um, to, to save some wear and tear. I hate pulling hoses. So my containers are grouped at the end of my driveway. I can't pull a car in because of my messy garage. So now I try to make it look like an intentional garden instead of hiding a mess. Um, and I have many, I have other topics people are welcome to ask about as well. I love design and, and floral aspects of gardening, especially. And my email is my name in lowercase letters. So it's marie.butler at cox.net, M-A-R-I-E dot B-U-T-L-E-R at C-O-X dot N-E-T. Great, Marie. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing some of your uh, fun animal stories. And many of us, of course, who garden are also animal lovers. And I'm hoping 
not to wake up one day and find a National Zoo elephant in my garden. (laughs) (laughs) That the worst thing that I might find is a buck or two. But um, it's interesting to at least learn uh, that the garden would probably survive if that happened. I think it would. (laughs) Thank you again, Marie. Thank you, Kathy. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Plant Profile, Tall Sedum There are two general types of sedums for the garden, creeping sedum ground covers and tall sedum. The tall type grows between 1 to 3 feet high and performs best in full sun locations with well-draining soil. They thrive through summer's dry heat and are extremely drought tolerant. There is no need to fertilize this plant. If you do, the growth can become leggy and flop over. The tall sedum varieties work well as border perennials or can be planted in groups to give a mass effect. They combine well with ornamental grasses, asters, and echinacea. The taller upright varieties of sedum typically develop large flower heads in midsummer and bloom from late summer through fall. The flowers can be left to dry and stay on over the winter to provide seeds for wildlife. Sedums are an easy perennial for even the novice gardener. They are low maintenance requiring virtually no pruning to shape. They make good cut flowers, attract pollinators, and are a great addition to any landscape. Sedum Autumn Joy is a classic selection. Some of the newer selections to try include those with darker purple leaves like Vera Jameson and Purple Emperor, or bright variegated foliage like Frosted Fire, or yellow flowers like Lemon Jade. It is very easy to divide and propagate tall sedums, Much like the other members of its large succulent family, you can pull out a few stems, strip off the leaves, and simply stick them in the ground. They will form new roots within a few weeks. Try a sedum in your garden today. You can grow that. What's blooming in my garden this week? Well, last night we got zapped by a frost, but I was pleasantly surprised to go out and see that most of my annuals survived the night. I still have impatiens, begonias, geraniums, and terrinia blooming. The really nice surprise was that my late blooming roses are coming in, and those are ground cover, white meadowland, and several other ground cover roses pushing out their last blooms of the season. When roses come back in the fall, they're not as floriferous or covered with flowers as they were in the spring, of course, but they are so welcome and such a lovely sight. I like to cut a few and bring them in to have them next to my desk while I'm working or next to the kitchen sink while I'm doing dishes. Late blooming roses.
Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter by going to anchor.fm backslash Kathy dash gents backslash support. For as little as 99 cents a month, you can become a listener supporter and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. Another way to support Garden DC is to go to WashingtonGardener.com and subscribe to Washington Gardener magazine. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.